Okay, our scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 21 through 48 this morning. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You have heard that it is said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away for the one who wants to borrow from you. For you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Thank you, Sandy. Would you give her a round of applause? That was a lot of text to read. She did a beautiful job.
Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's been really good. I kind of was longing for it all week, and then I think just singing with you and worshiping with you in a moment to pray um, is why I was hoping for that. Uh, we are currently walking through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, if you couldn't tell from the text you just read. And just as a way of catch-up, a little bit of summary of what we've done and what we've covered so far, because we've got a lot to do today, and I'm going to try to get through all of it in a reasonable amount of time. But for way of catch-up, what we have been talking about is the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for his people. It's a description of what the people of God can look like, what the way of Jesus is opens up for us. As we follow Jesus, as we live into his way, he's like, this is a description. Here is a picture of what my people can look like. You are salt and light in the world around you. You become that salt. You become that light by loving as I am showing you how to love, living into the love and the way of me. The Sermon on the Mount is the vision of Jesus. It is the way of Jesus, the thing that we see in his life now expressed in his words. And as we listen to it and as we hear it, we are invited to respond again and again to Jesus' invitation to be his people. And right now, we're in the midst of maybe some of Jesus' most provocative sayings. We just heard them. These are the things that we think about maybe when we hear the Sermon on the Mount. They're some of the most intense, beautiful, challenging ideas And we've taken this section and we've sort of broken it up into two parts. So last week we sort of introduced the idea, and then this week we're going to work through the application of that idea, so to say. And last week, Jesus began this section by telling the listeners, the people who are around him, that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And then from that moment, Jesus begins to work through these case studies, these examples. He references the Old Testament and then says, but I tell you this. And when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, what Jesus is saying to us is that he has come to restore the intention of the law and to bring it to its end. This is what Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 in the greatest commandment. Jesus says this to us. He says, all the law, all the prophets, all of Scripture hangs on these two commands. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole game. If you want to understand my work, if you want to understand what I'm doing in the world, if you want to understand the Old Testament prophets, the laws, the confusing Hebraic parallelism in the Old Testament, you want to understand any of that, it boils down to this. Love God, love others, love yourself. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm here to show you. My way is the way of love. The same theme, in case you doubt it, gets articulated by the writers of the New Testament over and over again. Paul in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Be imitators of God, dearly loved children. Live your life with love following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Or as the Apostle John says, Jesus' beloved disciples, dear friends, let us love each other because love is from God and everyone who loves 
is born from God and knows God. But if you do not love, he says you do not know God. The whole thing, the whole story boils down to this, that you love. Because you've experienced, witnessed, and been made present to the love of God. Everything we do, Missio, we do for love. In the way and in the truth and the power of Jesus. So this is what we talked about last week. But if you want to understand my way, you want to understand my ethic, you want to understand what it looks like to be my follower, then you understand this. Love God, love others, love yourself. And the section of Scripture that we're turning to now is Jesus taking that law of love, the fulfillment, and he's going to apply it to very famous Old Testament laws. Each one of these moments comes from the Old Testament. And there's six moments here that we're going to try to look at all of them. And they're kind of like case studies. What does the love of God do to these Old Testament laws? How do they help us restore their intent? And how do they help us live into something even bigger or beyond what the original intent of the law is? How do they help us make love real? Now, these laws that Jesus looks at, they're not meant to cover every part of the Christian life. They're important. They're essential for us to pay attention to. But as you're listening to him today, what I hope you gain is less that we're looking at these individual laws and more that this is the framework Jesus applies to life. So yes, this is how Jesus talks about murder, but it's also how Jesus would talk about friendship and how Jesus would talk about being a neighbor and how Jesus would talk about being in relationship with a coworker. And this is also how Jesus would talk about all other parts of our life through the lens and through the rhythm and through the practice of love. So case study number one. Let's jump right in. Case study number one comes in Matthew 5, verse 21 through 22. This is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. Think we've all heard that one? And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. This is an interesting moment. Paul, the apostle in Galatians chapter 3, says that the law that God gave to the people should be thought of like a tutor or a guardian. And I think this is helpful for us to think about right now. The law is like a guardian, according to Paul, in that it sets upon us limits and boundaries for our life in order to preserve peace and limit evil. So the law, do not murder, is a good law, right? It limits how much violence might enter into the world. It sets consequences to the violence that might enter into the world. It's a good limiting law, a good boundary around the people of Israel and around us today. It's like speeding laws in our own world. They're intended to limit how fast we drive because all of us, you know, would drive as fast as we can if we didn't have speeding limits. They limit us to keep us safe and to keep the peace, to keep the unity of the road. Those are good laws, right laws. But it's not enough. Not murdering 
does not mean that we live in peace. And not murdering doesn't mean that you are in friendship with other people. And not murdering doesn't mean there's equity. And not murdering doesn't mean that there's justice around us. And when, so Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, Jesus is in effect saying, you have heard it said, don't murder. And you think that's enough, but it's not even close to enough if you want to be a follower of me. You need to imagine more than that. You need to imagine what's possible in the way of love, which presses beyond just simply not killing people to imagining them as friends and family. Jesus is saying that is not the best we can do. God is interested in more than limiting pain. God wants to make love a reality, which is why Jesus drills into the deepest part of us, to the human heart and asks us, what kind of affections are we cultivating? Yes, I don't want you to murder, but what kind of affections are you cultivating towards others versus simply what laws are you keeping? Not murdering is a good, essential first step. But for Jesus, it's not the end. The end is hearts that love, And Jesus' addendum to this is hearts that move towards reconciliation, which is why Jesus adds into this command. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you that if you're angry in your heart, you're subject to judgment. Therefore, if you're in contention with somebody, he says this, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go first make things right with your brother or sister Then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly. This is a wild moment. Jesus says, before you go to the temple and do sacrifices, go make it right with your friend. Before you do the worship of God in the temple, the right things, the appropriate good things to do, he says, you need to go make sure you're in right relationship. I am more interested that you are unified with others, that love orients you towards reconciliation and neighborliness than I am that you have participated in the right rituals, done the right sacrifices. You've heard it said, don't murder. That's not enough. Imagine if we prioritized reconciliation. Imagine if we move towards one another, above and before anything else. Case study number two. Jesus goes on to say, You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Like before, Jesus is quoting the law, but pressing it further. So it's a direct quotation of the law. But there's some work that we should do here to understand what it is that Jesus is naming, because he's in serious territory here. The word lustfully is the same word that we use throughout the Bible for covetously. And the reason I think that's important to note is that it highlights and emphasizes objectification, looking at someone as an object. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's fine, that's good, but it's too low of a bar. I say to you, don't treat women as objects. I say to you that the goal of relationship, the goal of love, is dignity, value, and the worth 
of others. I say to you that you should be so compelled in the dignity and love of another that you do everything in your power, including cutting off your hand and gouging out your eyes in order to treat people with the respect that they are inherently given. I say to you, adultery is too low of a bar. Why don't you treat people like a human? Now notice who Jesus says is responsible in this moment for treating women with dignity. Men. He does not say, women, you should disfigure yourself in order to control the lust of men. He says, men, you should cut your hand off in order to treat women with respect. He says, men, you are responsible for your own heart. And I think this is such a beautiful thing to say because Jesus so values the dignity of both people. He does not put the the weight of lust on women, but he also doesn't so degrade men and say that they are not capable of maturing their own heart towards dignity. So he places the weight on the person who has been objectifying. This is confirmed when he tells men to do anything they can to treat women with respect, including cutting off your right hand and your right eye. And again, this is an interesting moment. Scholars debate a bit what kind of innuendo Jesus is making by right hand. Uh, you probably all can fill in the space there. But without, throughout Scripture, right hand and right eye, though maybe innuendos, are also symbols. They're symbols of both power and of dominance. The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight has this really helpful way of defining. He says this, The right hand is the dominant hand for the majority, and so expresses both power and value. People would often be considered the right hand of the king. You sit at my right hand. The disciples ask Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left hand? Because they are demonstrations, symbols, expressions of dominance, of control, of power. But in the same way, Scott goes on, ancient people also connected the right eye to status. The right eye means the dominating and empowering eye. So what Jesus has just said is that the right eye and the right hand, these symbols of power and dominance, he looks at men and he says, you do everything in your power to divest of dominance, power, superiority, narratives of your own supremacy in order to treat people with dignity and respect. This is actually much more serious than cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye. If only it was that easy. He's like, you need to get low. You need to pick up your cross. You need to die to yourself and all the cultural stereotypes and stories that have elevated you above women and allowed you a place of privilege and position and dominance to treat people as objects. In this kingdom, you die to elevate another. Well, you watch out. What does love make possible? You heard it say, do not commit adultery, but I say to you the good and the better. This is what Bonhoeffer said, is that all Christian passion is rooted in love and dignity. Case study number three. We're moving. You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you, That whoever divorces his wife, 
except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we're stepping into difficult territory whenever we talk about divorce. I just want to name that at the beginning of this. And I also want to say that we are not in this moment going to litigate when or when not a divorce is considered theologically appropriate. Scholars debate this, pastors debate this, people debate it a lot because the word that Jesus uses for unfaithfulness is the Greek word pornea, and it is translated all throughout Scripture as a myriad of ways. It's unclear. It's unclear what it means, and I don't think wrestling with it in its black and whiteness is the point of this text. So what I'm going to say in a moment, I hope is helpful for that conversation, but will not address it in the same kind of way. Instead, I think what Jesus is focusing on here is uh, relevant, but slightly different than that black and white narrative that we often want. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 in this moment. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 is an interesting text that says a man can divorce his wife and give her a certificate of divorce if he finds her displeasing, is the word that's used. Nobody knows what the word displeasing means. In fact, as I was doing the research for this text, I found three different rabbis interpreting what the word displeasing means, and I would like to read them to you for comic relief. Rabbi Hillel argued that unpleasing means anything unpleasant, even spoiling a dish. (laughs) Oh, no. It's going to get worse. Rabbi Aki argued that anything unpleasant could include finding someone who was more pleasant to look at than your previous wife. And Shammai, who had the most uh, maybe traditional understanding of this sex, said it was only unchastity. Now, the reason I tell you this, apart from comedic relief, is that you can see the breadth of interpretations for the Deuteronomy passage. And what that had done culturally is enable men to hand their wives certificates for divorce and feel as though they had done the righteous thing by writing her a legal certificate. You spoiled the macaroni? Well, here it is in legal writing. Get out. People felt like they were righteous, that they were legally upholding the standards of the law as long as they handed someone a certificate of divorce, making it legal. That was enough. That strict adherence to the law, that was enough to keep them righteous. And so Jesus looks at this moment and says, that bar is too low. That bar is too low. You think you're righteous because you wrote somebody a certificate of divorce? You don't even know what righteousness means. In the ancient world, this is important in the same way that it's important for us today because divorce not only does it cause psychological wounds, not only is it painful, not only can it be hard, it can be all those things. In the ancient Near East, it would also leave people very vulnerable. It's just like you've not even considered the needs of another. You've not considered the ramifications of the decisions that you have made. Just writing a legal certificate makes that bar too low. 
Later in Matthew, Jesus will have this similar conversation with the religious leaders. And he'll tell them that Moses allowed divorce because of your hardness of hearts. And I think this is the key to understanding what Jesus is doing in this moment, where love presses this command. Jesus says, the issue is in your heart. And what he's calling the listeners to and what he's calling us to is to ask ourselves the question of what if we made decisions about our marriages out of love and not out of hardness of heart? You've heard that giving a certificate of divorce makes you righteous, but I tell you that even when your marriage is falling apart, even when you think you need to leave, and maybe that is true, that decision comes from a heart that is still oriented towards God, towards the other, and out of love we make those difficult decisions, not out of hardness of heart. It's still out of seeing dignity, of fighting to see value. Do you think that you have done what is right, but you don't even begin to understand what is right until you try to love? Case study number four. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. This seems like a strange one, just in light of kind of the intensity of everything else we've said. You've got murder, you've got lust, you've got cut your hand off, you've got divorce. And then he's like, oh, also, don't click yes to Apple's terms of service agreements. <laughs> you know, those things, don't do it. Which is actually probably good advice, just generally. What Jesus is naming in this moment, though, I think is maybe one that has the most relevance to us in some ways. Because Jesus is saying, you have heard that you are righteous if you merely fulfill legal obligations. You think you can have a contract with somebody and do all the things in the contract, but if you find ways to work through those holes, or if you find ways to take advantage of people, or if you don't love people well, even if you fulfill the obligations of the contract, you think you're righteous. And Jesus is like, I don't care what the contract says if you don't love this person. I'm uninterested in what the legal obligations you have to this home buyer, this home seller, or this person in your life if you haven't tried to love them. So he just says, don't, don't make oaths. And he's not saying, I don't think that you can't ever enter into a contract. I think that would be very difficult in modern society. But he is saying that if you're a follower of me, let your actions speak the truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this beautiful way of saying it. He says, this moment imagines a world, oaths, this is what he Oaths imagine a world in which Christians are not honest, and Jesus does not imagine that same world. Jesus is inviting us into a world in which we are honest, in which our actions speak as loudly as our words do, and they communicate the truth and the standard of love that Jesus is inviting us into. 
Jesus says, you've heard it said that you can make a contract and that makes you righteous. But instead of that, I say, let your actions and your words speak of love. Case number five. Jesus goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jesus in this moment is, again, he's quoting the Old Testament law, a law that we call today lex talionis, eye for an eye. And it's an interesting law in context because on its surface it seems pretty barbaric that you would take someone's eye for your own eye. But if we remember what Paul said about the law, the law is meant to be a boundary around our lives, to contain evil. And the law of lex talionis is meant to limit the damage of revenge. It's meant to limit how much we expect or ask of or seek of another who has hurt us. Because often, it's one plus. Often we want a little more than the damage that we have been served. And so the law of lex talionis is meant to be a bit of a mercy, a bit of a boundary that says you can have an eye for an eye, which most rabbis think was probably financial compensation, someone's actual eye. Hard to know, though. You can have the measure of that you have lost as compensation, but you can't go any further. The cycle of revenge has to stop somewhere. The cycle of violence has to stop somewhere. And so Jesus takes this law, this Old Testament truth, honestly a truth that that we say today, and he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, Imagine a kind of love that stops revenge in its tracks. I say to you, imagine a kind of love that says no to revenge right at the beginning. A kind of strength and a kind of power that does not exact revenge again on its head, but says no, this is as far as you go. Imagine what love might do if we could stop revenge in its tracks. In this moment, Jesus is inviting us to imagine the power of love. And instead of meeting violence with violence, what if we acted in grace? Now you might hear that, and think that means Jesus is inviting us to be doormats or pushovers or to give in to some kind of like sappy sentimentalism. But that is not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is much harder and much more, requires much deeper strength. Jesus says, when someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. And what that means Jesus says, if you have been striked and you need to turn the other cheek, turn to them the other cheek from your right cheek, the image that's being created here is really fascinating. In order to slap you on your right cheek, let's see if my 
geometry is right here. <laughs> I was trying to tell you this from this point of view. I was like, this is confusing. To slap you on your right cheek, this is what most scholars think, means that Jesus is imagining someone has just backhanded you. And the reason for this is that in ancient Rome, you did not slap with your left hand because your left hand, again, was your hand of disgrace. We've already talked about this. Jesus had cut off your right hand, so it's your hand of disgrace, mainly because it's used for cleaning yourself. We'll let you fill in the gaps. And so Jesus is imagining a situation in which you have been backhanded, which is a sign of immense disgrace. Shameful, it it tries to steal your dignity from you. That's the kind of gesture that Jesus is imagining. He says, when this happens, when someone has tried to steal your dignity by backhanding you across the face, I want you to meet them eye to eye. And I want you to offer them your other cheek. And in that moment, you force them to confront the decision that they have made. You force them to confront you. You force them to confront their own actions. That's not an act of weakness. It is an act of radical strength and deep grace. To turn the other cheek is to say, you cannot steal from me dignity. To turn the other cheek is to look someone directly in the eye and say, no. To turn the other cheek is to look at the violence that you have been met with and say, "Mm, I have a deeper strength and a deeper power. I'm going to look you right in the face and say, no. So now you can make a decision about what you do next. Do you hit me like an equal or do you disgrace yourself and use the other hand? This is the same thing that happens in this next moment when Jesus says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. The Roman law allowed a Roman soldier to conscript a person to carry their stuff for one mile. So it was the legal law that a Roman soldier could come to you and be like, hey, carry my gear for one mile. But you couldn't legally force somebody to go any further than that. The idea was sort of a limit of how much you could ask, how much you could oppress people before they revolted. But by telling people to go two miles, Jesus is saying, confront that oppression with the absurdity of grace. So he says, go one mile, and you say, I choose of my own volition to go two. And in these actions, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, evil meets an opponent for which it is no match. It functions on the logic of growing violence, of resistance, and of revenge. But Jesus says, imagine a kind of love that in true power says no. The kind of love we see on the cross. The kind of love we see embodied in Jesus. And it's a kind of love that leads us to this final case study. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You've heard it said, hate your enemy. That is normal. That's how the world works. Us against another. Me against 
them revenge, retaliation, lex talionis, get what is yours. But Jesus says, imagine a world in which love not only says no to revenge, but actually transforms enemies into friends the exact same way you have been transformed into a friend of God. Imagine a love that overcomes all barriers and boundaries that we build. Imagine a love that brings healing and wholeness and reconciliation where violence and degradation and judgment is not the end of the story, but something better is. Imagine that kind of love, and you can because you are children of your Father who has loved you that way. Imagine a kind of love that can bring healing and wholeness to the world by living a different kind of way, the way of Jesus. He says you don't have to look that hard for it because it's the love that you have experienced. The love that transformed us from enemies into God's friends. That's the kind of love Jesus tells us to imagine in this moment and the one that he is inviting us to live into. Now, Missy, we've covered like a lot of territory. And so just as we conclude, what do we do with these words from Jesus? I think the first thing is just to hear the calling of Jesus to follow him. Would you hear it just again and again? Jesus says, I am the way, and he invites us to follow his way. And I feel so thankful that we're working through the Sermon on the Mount because it reminds me personally how beautiful, how revolutionary, how amazing, how challenging his way really is. So would you hear the call, the invitation to be Jesus' followers? To pick up your cross, which means to love like God loves. And would you see what kind of power this love has to birth something new and whole into the world around you? Paul says the love of God makes us shine like stars. Philippians 2. I've been thinking of that all week. It makes me think of Eminem too. But just imagine it makes you shine like stars. Love makes you luminous. And so would you respond to the call? And I think the second thing that I've been thinking about all week is that as we listen to these words of Jesus, I think it's a moment for us to reflect on our own spiritual formation. What I mean by that is where our hearts are oriented. What are we doing in our own life and where does it aim our hearts? Jesus says the purpose of the Christian life, our work, Everything we do is aimed towards love. And so the question I want to ask you is, does your walk, your prayer, your reading, your disciplines, your activities aim you towards this kind of love? I was reading this week um, some of the mystic, Christian mystics who, after Christianity became legalized in Rome, headed to the desert to try to find a more vibrant picture of Jesus And one of those desert fathers, a man named Abba Moses, has this quote I cannot stop thinking about. He says this, Everything we do, our every object is undertaken for love. 
This is why we take on solitude, fasting, vigils, work. For this is why we practice the reading of Scripture together with all the various activities. We do, pay attention to this moment, we do so to rise step by step to the high point of love. Hmm. I, I cannot stop thinking about that. Does my practice, does my habits, does my spiritual devotion during the week, does my worship on a Sunday help me rise step by step to the high point of love? And a love that looks like what Jesus has just invited us into. So, Missy, would you take these two invitations, the invitation to be a Jesus follower, to live into the way of love, and this invitation to aim and orient your heart towards love, would you take those two callings, those two questions, and in a moment, would you bring them to this table? It's a place where we have a chance to experience the love of God that was so big that it made a space for us at his table even when we were enemies. So would you experience again the love of God here? And would you use this moment as an opportunity to respond and orient your heart towards love? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your words today. Would we respond? I don't know what else to pray except as we hear this invitation and see the bigness and the beauty and the wonder and the opportunity of your words, would it evoke in us and call out of us something? Would it beckon us into your way? And would it rupture all the stuff around our heart that is oriented or aimed elsewhere from you? And would it start to curate in us a a love of you, of others, and of self? So God, speak to us, transform us, and aim us towards you and your love in this world. In your name we pray. Amen.